well to uh, some not so hard but still difficult to follow Jesus there and uh, today is, is International Day of Prayer where we remember the persecuted church and pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are today rejoicing in him and rejoicing in the gospel but at the same time are doing it in very, very difficult circumstances as well. And even as we think about the persecuted church today, they really actually help us to gain a focus on what we're going to talk about this morning as we come to uh, 2 Corinthians again. Uh, If there's one thing that the persecuted uh, church gets really well, it really is eternity. They actually get a good grasp of eternity. Uh, They've got a really good grasp here that our life on this earth is temporary uh, and they know through many hardships and trials that our lives really are momentary in the scheme of things. Uh, But in saying that, uh, through the trials and the the challenges where they know life is short and momentary, uh, our persecuted friends don't allow this momentary life to shape how they live now in those difficult countries. Uh, They live wholeheartedly to please God, uh, which is where we're going to go today as we think about Corinthians. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, please go to chapter 5. You might have it in the Bible, you might have it on a device like Simon. Just make sure you turn the ringer off so they don't ring you up. He's trying, you're trying to ring, uh, trying to read. Uh, device or Bible, whatever you got, we'll gladly welcome here as we uh, look at it together. So, chapter 5, and we're going to read verses uh, 1 through 10. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Uh, Lord, we thank you now that we can come and open up your word. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for the inspiration that you moved upon the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago uh, to write down these words. This is the living, breathing word of God. So we ask now, please, open up our hearts and minds as we think about today this temporary body that you've given to us and how you would want us to live in this body for this uh, short period of time we have upon this earth in comparison to eternity, living to please you. Uh, so I pray now, Holy Spirit, please uh, give us understanding and let it change our hearts as well, we pray. And Lord, we ask that in your name and for your glory, Jesus. Amen. So where Paul goes today in this passage really touches on perhaps some of the biggest issues uh, that we may face in life. Paul, Paul will talk about our earthly existence in the bodies that we have right now. Uh, And then in the same breath, uh, Paul will talk about the death of our earthly body as well. Really, it's in the same line there. And the way Paul talks about death, though, is so matter-of-fact for him. It's not a big deal, in a way. Uh, There's no apprehension or fear 
For Paul, as he, as he knows, this tent will be destroyed, this earthly body at some time. He just seems to take it in his stride as he talks to us here. So what Paul's going to do is help us to see our lives here through the lens of the gospel so that when it comes to living, dying, and then transitioning to eternity with Christ, Paul will take us through that with a gospel perspective on living now in that understanding or in that light of a temporary existence with an eternal body to come. With this eternal weight of glory in view, Paul confidently faces death and confidently uh, lives his life to please a gracious God. So if we uh, just approach now with our minds, think about our tent or our temporary bodies we just saw in that passage there and our home or eternal body that is to come. And we're going to pull this together and see that what we are to do, whether we are in the tent, temporary existence, or whether we are at home with the Lord in our eternal uh, destination. Okay, so first we're going to look at there is uh, tent and death. If you've got the outline there, it's tent and death. You're like, whoa, what's going on here, tent and death? Well, right in the very first verse, uh, Paul sets the tone for us very clearly what he's talking about. Verse 1 he says, For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, death, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Paul's using imagery here to, to convey a truth to us. He likens our earthly home as our earthly body. This is the, this is the home we have now for our, called our soul or our spirits in this home of this body is. And this is what you see right here, right now. You see flesh and blood. You see hands. You see feet. I could say head, shoulders, knees, toes. But you all might start singing if I say that. Could be from the Weevils or something like that. Uh, that's what it is. It's this temporary body we have. And he calls it a tent. A tent in this imagery here that he's trying to convey. A tent is something temporary, isn't it? If somebody goes camping, they set the tent up for a few days and then they pull it back down again. And some of those who've been tending the last couple of days might have already pulled down and come home because of the rain. Who knows? But anyway, it's a temporary existence. And just as quickly as Paul talks about this earthly body or this tent, he says then when this tent is destroyed... In other words, when this earthly body dies. Now, we're going to have to talk about this to sort of get an understanding here. It's an undeniable fact about death. Ten out of ten people will die. What do they say is certain in life? Death and taxes. Well, sometimes maybe not always taxes, but certainly death is certain in life. Ten out of ten people will die. Today, around the world, roughly, roughly, averages tell us, 150,000 people will die today. That's more than 100 people a minute are dying. So in the last three or four minutes that I've been speaking, three or four hundred people have died around the world. Death is a very, very real thing. Humanity really struggles with death. We do. Uh, Many on one hand don't even want to think about death. We'd rather think about life and just put death out of our minds. I don't want to think about it. Often our Western culture is called a death-denying culture. We just deny it really is there. We just sort of live on life without even thinking about death and just sort of pretend it's not, not that it's not going to happen, we just pretend to put it right out of our minds and not deal with it. Nobody wants to talk about it because there's so much unknown about death. You'll hear terms like, he or she has passed away. Now, we know what that means, but I guess that begs the question, where have they passed to? They've passed away. So it's just part of not wanting to deal with this finality and this thing called death. 
you'll go to a funeral, as we all do, and death is it's right in our face. It's right there. We're actually talking about possibly a coffin with somebody lying it there. It's, it's just right there. But amazingly, a few days later, everybody, except for the grieving family, have sort of moved on and forgotten about it to many respects. We just sort of let it push out of their mind. The grieving family are still hurting over it, but everybody else just seems to move on and we've forgotten about it. In a real sense, many people are living by keeping death out of their mind because it's too fearful for them to contemplate or think about. Now, if we deal with death that way, we just don't want to think about it or even take some time to sort of contemplate it to some extent, it's not going to stop death coming towards us. Ten out of ten people die. And if we live that way, not even thinking about death, well, we will in no way be prepared to face it when it comes. That's uh, one hand. On another worldview, uh, this is a perspective from what we call atheism, or this is people who believe there is no God at all, and there's quite a number in that community that actually take that point of view now. For someone who thinks like that, when you die, that's it. End of story, full stop, nothing. From an atheistic point of view, where they believe there's no God at all, when you die, that's just it. There's nothing there. It's over. It's finished. Uh, The other day, I read this article about a guy uh, who's a self-confessed atheist. He's got terminal cancer. And what he's done, he's actually gone and bought a cardboard coffin. He's being very environmentally friendly. He's put this cardboard coffin in his lounge room now, before he's died... And everybody who comes to visit him must walk past the coffin and they can write a little note on there. I'm not sure what the point of the note will be because it's going to decompose being a cardboard coffin. Uh, This guy even had a living wake for himself. Now, we normally have a wake at the funeral after it's been finished, but this guy's had a living wake before the funeral. So he's gathered everybody around to come and celebrate his life while he's there. That would feel probably strange, I think, in many respects. But that's what he's done. And here's what this guy said, an atheist who believes there's nothing. Uh, His name is Bertrand Kadar, and he said this about life and death. The 71-year-old said he liked the idea that the coffin would take about nine months to break down in the earth. I think it's good that you come from nothingness, and then one day you end up being a shrimp in some female womb, and you take months before becoming a little person, he said. And I figured out it should take about the same time for when you've done your dash. I guess he's talking about his life there. When you've done your dash and you go back to nothingness. He starts from nothingness in his mind and he goes back to nothingness. He comes from nothingness. He possibly has a meaningless life, possibly. And then he goes back to nothingness. When you think about that, you think that is all really so Pointless. What was the point of all that? What was the meaning of all that? You come from nothing, you might have a really difficult life and you go back to nothing. It seems really pointless. And from that worldview, we get the idea of voluntary self-murder or voluntary euthanasia. Because the point of nothingness is this. If I'm going to nothing and I'm suffering now, I may as well just end all the suffering and bring on the nothingness. If you think like that, that's exactly how you'll go with with voluntary self-murder. What's the point of suffering now? Because there's nothing out the other end from that perspective. See, we can think like that sometimes, and really life does become utterly meaningless if we take that approach. 
death is just the end of nothing. Now maybe you're here today and you're thinking, first time I've been at a church, maybe first time to be exchanged, and we are glad you're here. Maybe you're thinking, I thought life was like that. Maybe it was nothing. And I'm fearful about death. I'm not sure what's going to happen next. I'm going to say, we're glad you're here. We love to have visitors at exchange. We love to tell them about the truth of Jesus Christ, who's overcome death for us, confidently gives us victory through death. Hang in there and you'll hear about that today. One thing's for sure, with those worldviews, we will die. Our life on this earth is temporary. It is short. This tent or body that Paul talks about, as he says, will be destroyed. It will finish, just as Paul says there. Okay, Paul, though, for this, his main point is not death in this passage, but we do need to talk about it, which will help set us up for where Paul's going as he thinks about this uh, right now. The reason we die or our earthly tent is destroyed is because we have forfeited life by rebelling against God as our sovereign creator. <coughs> Why do we die? Because actually we forfeited life by going against the God who gives us life and breath. God told Adam, the first man he created, that uh, there's a tree of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. He says, Adam, the day you eat of that tree, you will die. He said, you will surely die. Now, Eve and Adam went together and they did eat of that, tr- of that tree. They didn't physically die at that point in time immediately. But spiritually, something died within Adam and Eve right at that point of disobedience before God. Adam's relationship with God died a type of death. The moment he disobeyed God. Now eventually death did move on into Adam physically and he did die in a physical realm. His body went back to dust. From dust to dust, as we say, Adam was formed out of the dust of the ground and this earthly tent, this earthly body went back to dust once again. You see, the gospel or God's word totally recognises death. Doesn't deny it, totally recognises it. The gospel understands death as the result of our willful rebellion against the God who gives us life. The gospel shows us that really clearly. That's what has happened. The Bible doesn't deny also that death is a terrible thing. It's a shocking thing. Uh, death is horrible. It's completely foreign to us. Um, when somebody is in their right mind and they're fit and they're healthy and they're well, it's, it's just not even on their mind to die. It's completely opposite to what we're thinking. Nobody wants to die. It's a foreign thing. It's a shocking thing. It's a hor- and when somebody dies close to you, it's just like it stops you in your tracks and think this is so final. This is so difficult. How do I deal with this? Because it's so opposite to what we are and what I want to be. We want to keep living. Death is designed by God to send a really, really strong message to us. Something is wrong. Something is really wrong. Why we're dying. Death is designed to make us us ask this question, why? Why do we die? It's, It's meant to stop and make us think about life. The gospel also speaks uh, victory over death as well. As much as it makes us aware of death and what it is, it speaks victory over death. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to take sin's penalty, death, upon himself at Calvary and to defeat it once and for all. And that's exactly what he did. Jesus lived a perfect life, yielded that life up to the Father in total, 
perfect obedience and offered it up as a sacrifice, as a payment for our sins, willingly, not coerced into it, willingly offered himself up as a life, uh, as a sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice for all of our sins, past, present and future. God accepted Jesus' payment on the cross as full payment for mankind's sin. And because Jesus had no sin of his own, because he lived a perfect life, he was able to rise from the grave victorious over sin and death, completely having all power over sin and death. Now, for all those who put their trust in Christ, turn away from sin, Jesus grants them forgiveness of that sin and eternal life with him. The gospel brings the good news here about death. What we see then is it's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, according to the scriptures alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. That's the celebration we have in this salvation by grace. It's a glorious thing. Now I say all that, all that about death and the gospel out of the country, because this is the foundation of what Paul is talking about right here in verse 1 at the very start of this chapter. In Christ, in Jesus himself, we'll have a house, an eternal home prepared by God in the heavens. Paul uses this building image again here. One is the tent temporary, but this now building image or home is like the permanent home. The body we have now is just a transient thing. It's just for a passage of time. God is preparing for us an eternal body that will never grow old, never grow weary, and it will remain eternal, eternally in perfect health. Yes, we'll die. The earthly tent will break down and die. But then God gives us this eternal body that will exist in forever. And all this ties in with where Paul was the previous chapter we looked at over the last couple of weeks. Chapter 4 there, he's talking about the body wasting away in these light momentary afflictions. And then he goes on to say this is all happening while our inner person is being renewed day by day. And this eternal weight of glory is awaiting us. We saw that last week there. So Paul's tying this all together for the Ephesians. You can see how these chapters actually flow on. These different passages linked together. He's talked about that last week, and now he's telling us about this eternal body that's going to, that we will exist in forever in heaven. Now Paul sees this also uh, in the light of where we're living. So he thinks about it here in verse, the next verse, verse 4, that we are living in an intermediate period. And in between stage, and it says there in verse 4, for while we are still in this tent, earthly body, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. It's a good word, that word, groan there, isn't it? I mean, it's, we can all groan a bit when we get out of bed in the morning, because we don't want to get out of bed, but this groaning here is talking about... The challenges of life, this body that's breaking down, it's wearing out. It's like it's groaning under sufferance. So Paul is aware here in this passage that we are in a now and not yet kingdom. A now and not yet kingdom. The kingdom of God has broken into this world and we sense the gospel that has been revealed to us by the Spirit so we know the kingdom of God's broken into this world but it's not yet fully revealed, is it? Because we're still suffering with the challenge of this world. It's broken in in the sense of we understand salvation, but it hasn't yet fully been made complete 
because we're still suffering in this world. And that's why Paul's saying we groan in this tent, in this intermediate period. And this groaning and suffering will come in various degrees for various people in various seasons. The world I live in is suffering from current brokenness. Even though I'm trusting in Christ, according to God's sovereign will, I'm still going to be subject to the corruptions of this world. It'll just, that'll be just the way it is. Being a believer in Jesus doesn't make me immune to the discomfort of this world. Some people who are uh, uh, believers, followers in Christ, will die a very early death. Sad, terrible and shocking. But that's part of living in this world and we don't know the mystery of God's will behind those things at times. Others will live a right full age, maybe into the 80s or 90s or maybe even over 100. It all depends on God's sovereign will in that place. So Paul, in a sense, we are living in this in-between time period. The kingdom of God has broken into the world and we're saved, but it's not yet fully consummated in the sense that we have these perfect bodies that will go on forever. Paul steps us out further though in verse 5 and shows us here that this eternal body and glory is all God's plan and God's doing. Look in verse 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God and who's given us the spirit as a guarantee. God in his grace has saved us. And in his grace, he's preparing for us this eternity with him. It's all God's doing. God is using the heartbreaking experiences of this world to cause us to look for and to long for eternity to come. This is what it does. We go through these challenges and we just say, Lord, please bring on heaven. Please bring on heaven. The indwelling of the spirit here is this inner witness. It's this inner witness that he's given to us as a guarantee or a rock solid assurance that this is the hope to come. This is the future to come. And he's given us this spirit at this time to yearn, as it were, to long for this world to come. This is the witness of the Holy Spirit within us. And in the present day of the present challenges, the spirit helps us to go through this as we set our sights towards home. This is what God's plan and preparing has done. We look forward to this eternal home and homecoming where we are united perfectly with Jesus forever and ever. But this has a direct impact on Paul right now. He's got all this as, call it, head knowledge. This is what I believe. This is what I'm building my faith and my hope in. But this impacts Paul right here, right now. This is where we're going to go now as we think about that. Paul says, because of this eternal future awaiting us, he says, I am filled with confidence. Look in verse 6. He says there, so we are always of good courage. We are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. He knows that. But in that period, he says, I am always of good courage. And he repeats it again in verse 8 as well. What's Paul saying here? When he says, I'm always of good courage, he's saying this. Because I have this glorious Christ-filled future ahead of me, he knows it's ahead of him, it's in the future, I'm filled with confidence. I'm filled with courage. I can now live this life in the waiting stage filled with hope. I don't have to be down in the doldrums about it. I don't have to be all sort of, sort of you know, you know, an absolute screaming mess on the ground. I can be filled with courage and hope and confidence about the future. It doesn't matter what I'm currently facing at the moment. 
This future gives me confidence and it gives me hope. And then Paul, as it were, the very next verse, in verse 7, drops this massive gold nugget of truth on us. What's he say in verse 7? Following straight on. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. Paul is saying this. In regard to our current circumstances, it doesn't dictate the end result of my life. Whatever I'm dealing with at the moment, it's not dictating to me what the end result of my life will be. I may be groaning in this tent. I may be struggling through all manner of circumstances. Life may look very average for me at the moment, according to my current situation. But this faith, because I walk by faith, this faith, filled with hope, filled with courage, tells me an entirely different story than what my circumstances are telling me at the moment. My faith says this, as the Spirit witnesses deep within me, Jesus is mine. My sins are forgiven. And I have an eternal inheritance that is undefiled and kept in glory for me. It builds hope. It builds courage. It builds faith. Faith in Jesus enables me to carry on regardless of the circumstances I face at the present. Not going to necessarily say that that'll make the, the circumstances go away or any easier, but my faith carries me through those circumstances. Because I'm not walking according to what I'm looking at here and now. I'm actually walking according to what my faith is telling me what the end result is. Paul says we walk by faith and not by sight. This then leads us to Paul's big point in this passage for us in verse 9. He says this, So whether we're at home or away, so whether we're at home in this body or away as in eternally with the Lord, we make it our aim to please him. Whether we're home, whether we're away, we make it our aim to please him. Paul's saying this, Regardless of whether I'm still struggling in this current body, tent, temporary existence, or I'm united to Jesus forever in eternity, Paul's saying, I've got one aim. I've got one goal. I want to please him. I want to glorify him. I want to live for him. Paul is saying, this is what frames my life. This is what frames my life in the present waiting period here as I wait for eternity. Knowing that an eternal weight of glory is in the future for me, my thankful heart for that says, let me do all things to please this great and glorious God who so generously pours out these riches upon me in a faith sense at this present time, but with an experience of the Spirit within us in the present time as well. Let me pour out with a grateful and thankful heart, a life that pleases Him. Let everything I say, let every word that comes out of my mouth, let it please the Lord. Let everything I do with my hands or actions, whatever I do, Paul says, knowing this future awaits me, let it please the Lord. Every thought I have in my mind, Paul's saying, knowing this future of glory awaits me, let every thought I have please the Lord. As I take in this eternal future, my grateful response to Christ is, let me please you in every way. 
It's a natural response. It's a right response. It's a bit like this. You could be parents who are planning a wonderful holiday for your kids. It's going to be filled with new adventure, new sights, new sounds, new tastes, new smells, a whole range of things. But it's in six months' time. It's not tomorrow. It's in six months' time. And what are the kids like? They're excited about the future, aren't they? They're excited about... They're they're thinking about where they're going to go and what they're going to see and do and go. And what do they do? Out of thankfulness, they want to please mum and dad. Well, at least for the first couple of weeks anyway. They might might slide back after that. But you get the picture. Out of gratefulness and thankfulness, it's a natural response, isn't it? That's what Paul's getting at here. Knowing what God's so freely given to us, we want to please him. We want to please him. Now... Paul drops this little comment in at the end of verse 10. And when he drops this comment in, it's like a hand grenade going off, isn't it? Let's read it together. And then Paul says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You might say to yourself, Paul, what were you thinking when you said this? This doesn't seem to sort of fit. You've sort of brought the judgment seat of Christ in here. Sort of, does it, is this right? As I said, it's like a hand grenade going off to some extent. All of a sudden you mention the judgment seat of Christ here. I mean, there's probably a whole other talk, and there is a whole other talk, which we're not going to do today. But I'm just going to say a few things here, because this ties in exactly with what Paul is talking about. What Paul is saying, this is another real incentive for us to live pleasing and acceptable lives before God in this waiting period. The Bible displays God without any apologies, and I make no apologies at all for it, as a just and impartial judge. That's who God is. He's a God of justice. Jesus has purposed that he will judge all believers. Every single person who's trusting in Christ, God, Jesus will judge them and their works. Now, hear me right here. This is not a judgment of our salvation. This is a judgment of our works, what we have done as believers. So get that clear, because sometimes we don't want to get that mixed up. Am I going to get judged for my salvation? In a sense, yes, but the judgment there will be you're covered by the blood of Christ as we sung that earlier today. So salvation is locked away in what Christ has done. But our works that we carry out as believers will be judged. Paul's telling us that right here, right now. Judgment of our thoughts, judgment of our words, judgment of our actions, everything we say, everything we do, everything we think over our entire life as a believer will be judged by Jesus. He'll put it under the microscope. He'll test it. Whatever we've done in faith or a clear conscience before God will be added to us as our reward for eternity. All those things done in a clear conscience before God and in faith before him will be added to us as our reward for eternity. Anything that we've done that is out of selfish gain, not in faith, or with a guilty conscience, anything we've said or done or thought, will be stripped away from us. Now Paul says, soberly, Hold that thought in your mind as an incentive to live pleasing lives before God. Now, you may sit there and think, I don't think that's a real good incentive, some sort of like 
you know, scary feeling of judgment day and that's going to make me do more better things or something like that. You might think, I don't think that's a real good incentive. That's not the only incentive. But I would say this, if you were thinking like that, what Paul has written here aren't Paul's thoughts alone. What Paul has written here is inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is exactly what God wants us to hear. Regardless of what we may think about that, whether we think it's right or wrong, that doesn't come into the equation. This is what the Spirit wants us to hear, that there's a judgment seat coming, and it's, I think it's a good thing to keep us in check as an incentive to live pleasing lives. Not the only incentive, but an incentive amongst others to live this pleasing life. So it does fit in with what Paul's talking about here today. It is a hand grenade. No question about that when it goes off. But it fits in. So where does this fit today as we think about this? Living lives that please God in our temporary tents that are groaning and certainly headed for death as well. Where does it fit in? 2019, soon to be 2020. Firstly, are our little moments in life, are our little moments in life pleasing to God? Todd, what do you mean by little moments in life? What about when you're at Bunnings on Saturday morning? And you're walking around just doing your general shopping, whatever. Are you demanding? Are you grumpy? Are you impatient with others in the store? They're little moments of life. You just, you're not even thinking too much about it. You just go in there and do your thing. Are you demanding or grumpy or impatient with others in the store? Or are you kind, courteous, pleasant and patient while standing perhaps in a very long line to get served? That's a little moment. Is your life pleasing the Lord there? Or, in my car, in traffic, is my attitude pleasing the Lord when somebody cuts me off? It's a little moment, isn't it? Is my attitude pleasing the Lord there in that little moment as I wait for this glorious future that's coming out of me? Or, when my daily agenda that I've got so organised and put in place, all the dot points are there, Somebody comes along and disrupts that daily agenda because of their total disorganisation. Is my response one then that pleases the Lord? I've got all my ducks in a row, but this person here has just got all their ducks all over the place. It's a little moment. It's important. Because we've got to live life now pleasing the Lord. Here's another one. As gospel followers of Jesus Christ... Another very powerful way to live a pleasing life before God is to die well. Is to die well. Now you're saying, Todd, this is getting to become a very morbid talk today. It's a lot of death here. Not at all. This is filled with hope and confidence and courage. Paul's just told us that. It's a talk of reality. It's a talk of truth. It's a talk of of this facing life's greatest challenge with hope and confidence. This is what Paul's talking about here. And in the context of what Paul is talking about, I think it's paramount that we must aim to glorify God through our death. Absolutely. In someone's dying stages of life, I think this can be the most powerful time actually to glorify God. It really, really can be a time of real hope when somebody's actually dying. When family and friends are gathering around and they're visiting and someone's close to death, I think it can be really awkward for family and friends. They don't sort of know how to talk. 
how do I, you know, because the world in many respects doesn't know how to deal with death, so they actually sort of come and they might talk about old times and things, which is totally okay, but really, in some respects, they don't know what to say or how to deal with this at this particular time. Thinking if they do talk about death, oh, that might be too negative, I don't want to, you know. It can be an awkward, challenging stage for people when it's like that. Here's what I'd say. You know, you've been diagnosed with whatever the illness might be or the condition might be and you've gone through any amount of treatment, I would say seek all the treatment you can to remain as alive as long as you possibly can. So don't hear me wrong thinking, am I trying to race to death as quick as I can? Not at all. Pray for healing. Pray that God will miraculously restore you and make you well and get all the medical help you possibly can get. But when you get to the point where the doctor says, okay, the prognosis now is certain death, maybe weeks... God still could heal you, no question about that, but it looks like everything's heading towards death at this point in time. Talk about it with your family. Talk about death with your friends. Talk about it with children. Sometimes I think we actually protect our children too much from these big realities of life. Sure, it'll be in an age-appropriate way, but don't keep death away from your children. Let them know about it. And why do I say that? Let them know about the hope that Christ gives in death. So they will know the reality of death, but they'll also know the reality of the hope that he gives. Dying well is dying by putting our hope and our trust in Christ and letting that shine out of our lives in our final days or weeks. Because when people are there, they don't know what to think or how to speak And that is a golden opportunity to point to Jesus Christ, the living hope, who's overcome death for us. It really can be the most powerful time to glorify God. People are struggling and and, and not sure how to cope with this thing. And you're the person who's dying and you're showing them how to cope with it. My cope is through the hope that Christ gives me. It is a really, really powerful time. Tell them that death is the doorway into eternal life. Tell them that death has been overcome by Jesus. That's who my hope and my trust is. And in that, we can truly glorify God in that death. Let's look at how Paul spoke about his impending death. And Simon read it for us early on. Verses uh, 6 and 8 from Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy 4 says this, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Paul's saying, my death is imminent. Now, tradition tells us he was beheaded in Rome maybe only days or weeks after writing this letter. So he knows death is not because of sickness. He's about to be persecuted. Verse 7, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, Paul's keeping in tune there with the judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. Paul's speaking very positively here about his death, which is possibly days away. And then down to verses 17 and 18, he says this again. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. And what will the Lord do? Bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. What does Paul say next? To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul's about to die. 
Is he dying well? Looks like he is, doesn't it? He's got this hope firmly fixed in his mind. He's always of good courage. Paul says, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is glorifying God right to the very end of his life. This is a life pleasing to God. This is a life filled with confidence, facing life's biggest hurdle and biggest challenge. Because the Holy Spirit within Paul has made this truth real to him, alive to him. Despite what death might tell him inside, his faith says, no, I have hope and confidence and sure hope and sure confidence in what Christ has for me on the other side of death. An eternal existence with Christ Rejoicing in him forever and ever and ever. Amen, Paul would say. This is the hope that we have if you're in Christ. This is the hope that we have that we can take out to the community where we live. You may not go out there and speak directly about death, but that may be one opportunity you can do it. But there's plenty of other opportunities we can to share this same living hope. And this is the mission we have here at Exchange. 66 or 68,000 people living in Greater Shepparton. Lucky if there's 2,000 people in churches on Sunday morning. That means 64, 66,000 people haven't got that hope. It's 100 people dying every minute. Many of those, most of those, without that hope. We've got that hope. Paul says, be of good courage. I'm always of good courage, Paul says. Let's share that hope so that others too will come to experience this risen Christ who helps us to overcome life's biggest hurdle. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you today as we come and as we speak about this major, major challenge. Lord, I thank you today for the hope that you've given to us, the hope that you've firmly planted in our hearts, the hope today, which is the hope of glory, that, Lord, in the face of everything we face in this world, these bodies that are breaking down, these bodies that are facing all amount of challenges, and, Lord, I know that as people sit in front of me, there are any number of people going through different seasons of life. And I pray that we would draw alongside them to strengthen them, to lift up their eyes, to walk by faith and not by sight and let their faith tell them that Jesus loves them, Jesus cares for them and Jesus has an eternity before them that is filled with glory. And that, Lord, that faith will become a tremendous strength to help them carry on. God, I pray, let that strength and let that faith uh, grow in our hearts and our lives so that we can spread that mission and that that message of hope through the mission of Christ that we can undertake here at Exchange. Father, today I do ask that, I do pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. This team's going to lead us for a a song. I'm going to be down the front. If you'd like some prayer or any questions about today's talk, I'd love to catch up with you. Thanks.